Today's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy 3.10 to 4.5, which can be found on page 996 of the Pew Bible. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at at Lyconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the, his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's word. Thanks, Raudo. Uh, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to 2 Timothy as we look at this text together, and let's pray for God to meet us. Lord, we praise you that you are speaking every time your word is opened. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. And so, Lord, would you meet us this morning? Would you open our hearts and our eyes to see you, our ears to hear you, and would your spirit change our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. There's a scene in Tolkien's The Hobbit where the dwarves are preparing to cross through Mirkwood, a dark and and dangerous forest But as far as they know, the only thing standing between them and the prize that they seek, the lonely mountain where they hope to reclaim their lost kingdom. But the evening before they arrive at the forest gate and get ready to cross through Mirkwood, Gandalf the wizard, who has guided them through their journey, who has protected them 
at every turn, who's rescued them multiple times out of situations they've gotten themselves into, he tells them that he's not going with them any further. And the dwarves are crushed. They're shocked. They're filled with despair. How in the world are they going to make it through this forest and claim their prize? What if they get lost? What if they encounter more goblins or something worse? But before he departs, Gandalf leaves them with one final instruction. Don't leave the path. Don't leave the path. If you stick to the path, you just might make it to the other side and claim your prize. If you go off the path, a thousand to one, you'll never find it again and never get out of Mirkwood. Now, I've used that illustration before, in case anyone's taking a tally of my Tolkien references, but I think that it gives us a good sense of what's at stake in Paul's final letter, the last letter he wrote before his death, the second letter to Timothy. Because we too have a prize that we are in pursuit of. What he describes in chapter 2 as, quote, a salvation in Christ with eternal glory. That's a prize. Or in chapter 4, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on that day to all who have loved his appearing. So the glory of God and the gladness of his people, that is our prize. The day when we will finally and fully, without distraction or contamination, and for all eternity, finally treasure Christ above all things, as he deserves, as he truly deserves. We have a prize, but we also have a dangerous path before us as we pursue that prize. Paul describes the dark situation facing the church in chapter 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self and lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. And he goes on for three more verses of how ugly and dark the situation is. And those who refuse to fall in line with that godless, degenerate culture will be duly persecuted. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so there's a great prize, but there's a great temptation because of the allure of sin and the suffering that we will face on the journey to give up on that prize or to give in. To the darkness, to settle for a lesser treasure than Jesus himself. Forgetting that the cross is not only the power of God for salvation, it's also the pattern that we've been given as followers of Christ, that the cross comes before the crown. But just as dangerous to our faith and our mission, and, and just as threatening to this vision of God's glory and our joy is the false teaching 
that is constantly trying to infiltrate the church and persuade people to wander off the path. Paul continues in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not tolerate sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Wandering off the path. And to make his point, Paul gives no fewer than six examples of people with whom he has worked who have wandered off the path and gotten lost in Mirkwood in this letter. There's a sober tone to this letter. So we have a prize. And we have a dangerous road ahead. But then Paul tells Timothy the really bad news. That he's not going with them any further. He's about to die. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So here Timothy is at the gate with the dark road ahead and the prize on the other side. What's he going to do? Paul's not going with him any further. Paul has been Timothy's Gandalf. He's been his guide and his mentor. What will Timothy do? What will, the, what will the churches do as Paul and the rest of the apostles begin to die? They had been the church's connection to Jesus. They were the ones who walked with Jesus and spent time with him, who witnessed his resurrection, who had been passing on his teaching. And now, like Paul, they're all beginning to die. So how is the church going to hear from God in the generations ahead? How will the church make it safely through Mirkwood and avoid the false teaching and the false living and claim Christ their treasure if Paul's not going to go with them? Well, that's why Paul's written this final letter to Timothy. And his answer of what, what needs to happen is both urgent and clear. You must stick to the path. Don't wander off the path. And the path is the Word of God. That's what Paul tells Timothy to hold fast to in order to make it safely through this fallen world and claim Christ our treasure. You must stick to the path. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you... Despite all of this crazy stuff that, that's happening and all of the persecution you're going to endure, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures. The scriptures have been your path from the beginning, so hold fast to them. Continue in what you've learned from them. And then look at his charge to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So don't just hold fast to the path yourself. Don't just hold fast to the scriptures. Hold them out for others too. Preach the word. Declare 
the Scriptures to God's people. If you hold fast to Scripture, and if you hold it out for others, and faithfully proclaim it, the church will make it safely through Mirkwood and enjoy a salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you go off the path, not only will you be no use to those who are lost and wandering around, you may never find it again and never get out of Mirkwood. So, what does that mean for the church today? That's what I want to talk about this morning as we look at our second core commitment as a church, what's called biblical exposition. So this fall, we're looking at eight core commitments uh, in route to this vision of seeing Christ treasured above all things. Uh, And the second one is what's called biblical exposition. That sounds like a highfalutin term, but the idea is quite simple. It is a commitment to a certain kind of preaching. The kind of sermon where the message and aim of the sermon are controlled by the message and aim of the biblical text that's being preached. As Charles Simeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century once said, my endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, to expose it, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. Or Pastor Mike Bullmore describes it this way. He says, the preacher says what the passage says. And he intends for his sermon to accomplish in his listeners exactly what God is thinking to accomplish through the chosen passage of his word. He continues, he says, imagine God sitting in the congregation as you preach. What will be the expression on his face? Will it say, that's not at all what I was getting at in that passage? Or will it say, yes, that's exactly what I was intending to say? And so, biblical exposition prioritizes the scriptures in preaching. Prioritizes the scripture. It's not... Simply a running commentary working verse by verse and book by book as it's often defined. It's the kind of sermon where the message and aim of what's being preached, the message and aim of the sermon, are controlled by the message and aim of the passage that's open before the preacher. That's what we're talking about. Now, that may sound like a no-brainer, that the goal of preaching should be to say what God's Word says. But sadly, it's increasingly uncommon in American churches today, even evangelical churches. Far more often, the preacher ends up using the Bible the way that a drunk uses a lamppost. So more for support than illumination from above. We, we prop ourselves up on the Word. We use it to support what we think we should say, or what we want to say, or sometimes even what we think people want to hear so that we can get them back here next week. We use the Bible. But there's a big, there's a world of difference between using the Bible and preaching the Bible. 
There's a world of difference. And I'm convinced that we will never keep our eye on the prize to see the glory and majesty of Jesus. Our hearts will never be filled with the fires of passion for him and his glory. And we will never anchor our joyful satisfaction in him and not in what this world can offer. In a phrase, Christ will not be treasured above all things apart from the faithful and clear preaching of his word in the gathered worship of his church. Biblical exposition. So so why is this? Why is it so critical? It's not because exposition makes a sermon easier to remember. Uh, I don't remember what I preached three weeks ago. So uh, it's not because it's a more effective communication strategy. Even less is it simply a matter of personal preference. It's a conviction about the nature of Scripture and the necessity of Scripture for the church's life and witness. Why exposition matters is because it's a conviction about the nature of Scripture, what the Bible is, and the necessity of Scripture, what we need it to do, the urgency, our urgency for it, uh, for the church's life and witness. And, and so first I want to think together about the nature of Scripture. Look again at Paul's words in chapter 3. If you think about it, Paul's about to die. Of all of the things that Paul could point Timothy to in order to guide him through this dark world so that Timothy can guide the church, why is Scripture the thing that he points to? Why does he emphasize the Bible? He doesn't point to an infallible office in the church He doesn't point to a living prophet. He points to the scriptures. The apostolic message which was written down for all generations. The inspired, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's his living and active word. That's what Paul points to. Because as one author has put it, The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. Everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. And that's what we see in chapters 3 and 4 here. Look again at verse 14. Paul says, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures, the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation, they reveal to us God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation. How is that? Why is that? Well, think about it. In these words, it's these words that reveal God himself to us. God has made himself known through his word. His, in all of his holiness, in all of his beauty and perfection and love. 
It's these words that reveal our created purpose, why he made us. You know, one of life's biggest questions, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? God tells us right at the beginning of his story that we're made in his image for his glory, that we might be his children and servants of his kingdom. These words reveal our created purpose. It's these words that reveal our fallen condition, that our sin has separated us from God and brought us under his divine judgment. It's these words that reveal to us God's divine promise, that he has promised to restore what was lost and what was broken by redeeming a people for himself. It's these words that reveal to us that God has in fact accomplished that redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of his son who gave his life as our sufficient sacrifice that all who believe in him might be saved. In short, it's these words that reveal to us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They reveal to us all that's necessary for salvation. That's the overarching message of Scripture. And it's through this word that salvation is possible. God's word is what's powerful to save. Not our words about God. God's word itself is powerful to save. And so so you can think of it this way. It's the word of God that does the work of God as the spirit applies it to people's lives. So my words can't change anybody. God's word has the power to raise the dead. And so it's the scriptures uh, that are sufficient and, and necessary for salvation. And that's true not just for salvation. It's also true... For sanctification, or or what we call growing in godliness, becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul continues in verses 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, How can a Christian change? How do we grow in our knowledge of God? How do we stay on the right path? How are we trained in righteousness that we might serve God? How do we become equipped for every good work? Through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. All Scriptures God breathes and is profitable for teaching, training, correcting, rebuking, for changing our lives that we might be servants of God. It's through the Scriptures. And so, therefore, as as Kevin DeYoung exhorts us, we do not need to add to the Scriptures to meet today's challenges or uh, subtract from it to mesh with today's ideals. The Word of God is perfect and complete, giving us all that we need to know about Christ, salvation, and godliness. The Word of God is, does the work of God as the Spirit applies it to our lives. That's a conviction about the nature of Scripture, that it's this breathed-out, living, active, abiding Word. It's authority, it's power, it's sufficiency. 
But this is also a conviction about the necessity of Scripture. So it's not just because of what the Bible is, it's because of our desperate need for what it is. The necessity of Scripture for navigating this fallen and hostile world that we live in today. What does it take for the church to make it through Mirkwood? That our mission might be complete and that our hearts might rejoice fully in Christ. We need the Scriptures. And so that's the second thing, the necessity of Scripture. Look again at Paul's charge to Timothy in chapter 4. And, and think about what's at stake in this charge. So, so look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We hear a lot today about the echo chamber. Everyone's talking about the echo chamber. The temptation to surround yourself only with voices that you already agree with. And so all of your dialogue partners, all of the people you learn from, are simply echoing your own voice back to you. There is nothing new about that idea. That's what Paul's talking about right here. And today... If you want to, you can find a church that will tell you exactly what you want to believe. However you want to think of God, wherever you, whatever you want to believe about life or morality or eternity, there is some church out there for you where you can go and hear your own voice echoed back to you every Sunday morning. But what if it's not true? What if it's not true? The truth comes from Scripture. God's divine revelation of himself and his kingdom. And if what we hear and believe is not true, if it doesn't come from Scripture, then no matter how it makes us feel in the moment, things are not going to end well. It's not going to end well. We will forfeit the prize and find the terror of eternal judgment in its place. That's what's behind the urgency and gravity of Paul's charge to Timothy in verses 1 and 2. I charge you. Think about someone saying to this, saying this to you. Okay? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's quite a setup for what he's about to say. Preach the word. That's your job. And if you don't do it, lives are at stake. Jesus is king. Jesus is coming. And when he comes again, he will judge all people. And so what we need more than anything else is to hear the saving and sufficient word of God in Jesus Christ. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Never be taken off guard. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Complete patience and teaching. Preaching God's word faithfully is necessary. It's necessary. It's a matter of life and death. Because it's a matter of the glory of God and the joyful, eternal satisfaction of his people in Jesus. The point of hearing and believing the scriptures is not simply about escaping hell, as important and awesome as that is. It's about living life as it was meant to be lived. in joyful relationship with God for the sake of His glory, seeing Christ treasured above all things, finding my hope and identity and satisfaction in nothing less than Jesus Himself. God has given us His Word for His glory, but also for our joy. So think of, of Jesus' own words in John fifteen eleven as He's talking to His Disciples, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's not speaking to us to beat us down. He's not speaking to us to, you know, make us feel bad about ourselves. He's speaking to us that his joy might be in us and that our joy might be complete. It's for our joy that he gives us his word. A joy unlike anything else in this world that will never, ever, no matter how dark our suffering becomes, that will never, ever let us down. Because it's anchored not in what we can get out of this world. It's anchored to the untouchable, inexhaustible glory of God in Christ. And that treasure will never disappoint. It'll never disappoint. And so hearing and heeding God's word, it's not just about being right or knowing the truth, though we need to know the truth. It's about enjoying the prize that is Jesus to the glory of God the Father as the Spirit takes his authoritative, inspired, sufficient word and brings it to bear on our lives. And so, apart from the faithful and clear preaching of God's word, Christ will not be treasured above all things. So what does this look like practically for us as a church in our desire to see Christ treasured? If we take the nature and necessity of the scriptures seriously, What does that look like, practically speaking? First, it means we're going to prioritize God's word in every aspect of life, in every relationship, and in every ministry, right? That all of life, we want to see saturated with Scripture. Um, One of our core values is submission to Scripture. And that's true not just for what happens in the pulpit. That's true for everything. Because... If God is speaking in the Bible and we need that word more than anything else, 
that word ought to shape all of life, right? Our every ministry, children's, youth, home groups, our own families, our own hearts. So, so we should see a priority of Scripture across the board if we take seriously the nature and necessity of God's Word. But that means we should also see in our gathered worship a priority of Scripture from the pulpit as well. That if in the Bible God is speaking and what we need is to hear from Him, not from the preacher, then what we need is a commitment to biblical exposition, to the kinds of sermons where the message and aim of the sermon is controlled by and coming from the message and aim of the passage being preached. So that it's God's word that gets the priority, not mine or anyone else's. Now, that doesn't mean that every sermon has to be a running commentary, verse by verse, book by book, and so on. Uh, That doesn't mean there's never a place for topical sermons. Uh, Quite ironically, this is kind of a topical sermon about biblical exposition, so there you go. That doesn't mean that the way I do exposition or the way we do it at Westgate is the only or even the best way. By no means at all. There, it's not about style. Uh, it's about the theological commitment to the priority of God's word. And there's all sorts of shapes and expressions that that can take. The goal is to hear from God. So that the word of God can do the work of God as the spirit applies it to our lives. And so what then should you expect from the preacher who takes the necessity and the nature of God's word seriously? And what does God expect from you in hearing and receiving his word? I want to take a minute to talk about the marks of biblical exposition, what you should expect from the preacher if he's going to prioritize God's word. And then I want to talk about the proper posture for sitting under biblical exposition, what God expects from the hearer, what God expects from you. I think there are five key marks of biblical exposition that you should expect from every sermon from this pulpit. And the first is very obvious, that the sermon must be faithful. It must be faithful to the Word of God. That's the essence of exposition. But you should expect that what the preacher says from this pulpit is what God is saying in the Word open in front of him. And if What he's saying is not what God is saying, or if he's making God's word say something other than that, you shouldn't listen, okay? Because it's God's word that we need, not the preacher's. So it should be faithful to the scriptures. That's the first mark. Second, the sermon should also be obvious from the biblical text. You should be able to see that that's actually the message. The preacher does not speak with an authority in his own, with his own authority. The only authority a preacher has is to the extent that he is faithfully preaching what God says here. And so, you should not have to take my word that this is what this passage means. You should be able to see it in the passage. 
I'm not the expert. I'm not the guru. The, the message should be obvious from the biblical text. Third, the sermon must be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the whole Bible story. That's what he tells us in Luke 24. The whole thing is about me. Therefore, you should expect to see Jesus magnified and lifted high in every single sermon. The power of a sermon for changing lives doesn't come from the eloquence or persuasiveness of the preacher, but in the cross of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to sinners. And so Jesus is the rightful hero of every single sermon. Not me. Not you, Jesus. He's the rightful hero. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He's the prize. He's the treasure. So it should be centered on the gospel of Jesus. Fourth, you should expect a sermon to connect God's word to the life and faith of his people. This isn't an academic exercise. This isn't just information download. It is a proclamation of God. That's what a sermon is. And and so look at the verbs that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 when he explains what he means when he says, preach the word. He says, reprove rebuke and exhort or encourage with complete patience and teaching. And so the preacher is to bring the word of God to bear on the daily life of God's people in a clear and compelling way, to stir affections, to engage the heart, to provide practical application. As Charles Simeon summarized his goals in preaching, it is, quote, to humble the sinner to exalt the Savior, and to promote holiness. Those were his goals in preaching. So the sermon should connect God's word to the life and faith of God's people. And then the fifth mark of exposition uh, is not quite on the same level as the first four, but still important if we take the nature and necessity of Scripture seriously. And it's this, that expositional preaching prioritizes working through books of the Bible. And again, that's not to say there's never an occasion for a topical sermon, uh, but I don't think that that should be the norm if we take seriously the God-given shape of Scripture, that, that God didn't give us His Word organized according to topic or systematic theology or anything like that, but He gave us 66 books in a variety of literary genre each book with its own particular structures and themes and message. And because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, we need to hear from all Scripture. We need to work through whole books of the Bible from both Old and New Testaments if we're going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so I think that should be the norm, working through books of the Bible, because that's how God gave us His Word. And uh, there's other benefits to it as well. I think it it respects the context of of Scripture. It helps listeners 
learn how to read the Bible as it's being preached. When you're working through books, you're seeing how this whole thing fits together, as opposed to parachuting into one text and then into another the next week and so on. And it helps the preacher be honest. You can't just skip an awkward or controversial subject when you're working through a book, something I would otherwise never pick to preach on. If I'm working through a book that brings that up, I got to deal with it. I can't deprive the flock of what God wants to say there just because it makes me feel uncomfortable or I don't know anything about that or whatever. And so that's what you should expect from the preacher who takes seriously the nature and necessity of God's word. Faithful, obvious, Christ-centered sermons that are connected to real life and faith and typically follow the God-given shape of Scripture books. That's what you should expect. And if you find yourself not receiving that, I expect to hear from you. Okay? But what does God expect from you who sit under the preached word? It's easy to treat the sermon like the spectator sport part of the service. You know, we're all engaged when we stand and sing. We all taste the bread and the cup. But then the sermon comes around and it's like cruise control mode, right? It's easy to do that. But if we take seriously the nature and necessity of Scripture, surely that demands something of the listener as well. And so here are five marks of healthy listening when we sit under the preached word. First, listen prayerfully. Listen prayerfully. If the word of God is what does the work of God, as the Spirit applies it to our hearts, then we need to pray for ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is speaking whenever this book is open. The question is, do we have ears to hear? And so we need to listen prayerfully. Second, listen carefully. And no, they don't all rhyme. Listen prayerfully, listen carefully, because we honor God by paying attention to what He has to say. Now, if you're in a conversation with a spouse or a loved one and you're on your phone doing whatever when they're trying to talk with you, is that showing them love? No. So we listen carefully to what God has to say because that shows our love for God. It also shows our respect for God's word. We listen carefully with our Bibles in hand or on our screen or however you do it. Because we owe it to God to confirm that what the preacher is saying is what God is saying. We need to listen and take our example uh, from the Bereans in Acts 17.11 who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They recognized the authority is in God's word. They were eager to hear what Paul had to say, but they were just as eager to test it against the written word. So we listen carefully. Third, we listen humbly. Listen humbly. Like the church in Thessalonica who received the word of God which they heard from Paul and accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Or as we talked about briefly last week in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Expect to hear from God when his word is preached. 
expect to be both comforted and confronted by the word that you hear. If all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and if if the preacher's job is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, then you should expect to be taught, rebuked, corrected, encouraged, and trained when we gather under the proclamation of God's Word. So listen humbly. Then fourth, listen in community. Listen together with the people of God. God's vision for us receiving His Word is not me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. It is a community of faith united in Christ and the Spirit, receiving His Word together, understanding it together, wrestling together, holding each other accountable together, obeying it together. Listen in community. It's interesting, you know, when Paul is telling Timothy... Reminding him to stick to the path. Notice he doesn't just point him to Scripture. That's the anchor. That's the foundation. But he also reminds him from whom he learned it. He learned the Scriptures in community. First from his mother and his grandmother. We learn God's Word and obey God's Word together as a family. The fifth mark of a healthy listening posture then is to listen fruitfully. To actually do something with what God's Word says. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. God's Word is designed to bear fruit in our lives, to renew our minds, to produce transformation. And so we should be eager when we hear God say something to put that into practice and to tell others what God's saying. To pass his word on. That was part of Timothy's charge in this letter as well. That what he's heard in the presence of many witnesses entrust to others who will be able to teach others as well. So we we bear fruit by obeying and by teaching God's word. If in this book God is speaking, and if there's no greater need than to hear from him... And if the preacher is actually saying what God's Word is saying, then we need to listen prayerfully, carefully, humbly, in community, and fruitfully if we're going to make it safely through Mirkwood and see Christ treasured above all things. Biblical exposition is not the only road that God has given us to pursue our vision, but it is an important one, an essential one. John Piper puts it, if God is not supreme in our preaching, where will this where in this world will the people hear about the supremacy of God? If we do not spread a banquet of God's beauty on Sunday morning, will not our people seek in vain to satisfy their inconsolable longing with the cotton candy pleasures of pastime and religious hype? If the fountain of living water does not flow from the mountain of God's sovereign grace on Sunday morning, will not the people hew for themselves cisterns on Monday? Broken cisterns that can hold no water. We must be committed to preaching the word. The scriptures reveal the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, biblical exposition, the faithful 
preaching of Christ in all the scriptures is essential for seeing Christ treasured above all things. Let's pray. Lord, what an absolutely incredible gift that you have revealed yourself to us. You've not left us in the dark of ignorance and sin. You have shown the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and you have given us an abiding witness, a living word that draws our hearts to you. God, we praise you for that. We pray that we would never take your word for granted and that we would never use your word for means other than what you intended it, but rather we would shine the spotlight on your glory and point others to find their identity and satisfaction and joy in you. There's no better news than the good news of your word. And so may that be our heartbeat and our guide. And may you receive the glory that you deserve as we rejoice in that glory. In Jesus' name, amen.